Mac Power Users, Episode 407, Workflows with Shahid Kamal Ahmad. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. How are you doing, Katie? I'm doing great, David. How are you? I am still ill, but I'm better. You sound better. Yeah, I, I do sound better. I have some weird thing going on. I, I got an infection in my right ear, and I still can't hear through it. And uh, wearing headphones when you can't hear through one side of your head is really weird. But there's this really trippy thing that's happening to me right now where um, my right ear, when I listen to music like an alto saxophone or a trumpet, like in that range, I can hear it in the right ear, but it's like a whistle. It's not the exact sound of the instrument that you hear through the left ear. It's like a whistle. And the trippy part is it's like about it's like a minor third lower than the actual instrument. So it's like a harmony. I, if I ever go insane, it's going to be because of this. <laughs> but anyway, that's not why we're here today. Shahid, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. I cannot tell you what a privilege and an honor it is, having listened to you both over the years, inform and educate me and probably trillions of other people on the joys of the Mac. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I feel like we have to have more people with English accents on the show because it really classes the joint up. It you know? does. <laughs> <laughs> um, Shahid was a guest over on Free Agents, I don't know, about seven, eight months ago. And back then, I'm like, oh, we got to get this guy Mac Power Users. He does so much cool stuff with his Mac. And and just as a little background, Shahid is a former, I guess you were executive with Sony. I mean, you worked a lot with the PlayStation. That's right, yeah. But but you were doing a lot of stuff for them, but you've got this massive experience in game development. So he's been making video games his whole life, and um and now he's out indie on his own. That's why we had him on the free agents to talk about that stuff. But but you're also something else, Shahid. You're a big Mac geek, and it's interesting to me because in your industry, Macs aren't all that big of a deal, right? Isn't the Mac kind of a second class citizen in the gaming industry? Well, less so recently, but certainly over the history of games development, the Mac has been seen as somewhat frivolous. That perception has changed massively, I would say, since the dawn of OS ten. Sure. And particularly the coolest MacBooks, you know, starting with I, I, I guess the the spark um ignited when the Titanium PowerBook came out. You know, that 400 megahertz thing, which I absolutely loved. Oh, now, remember, you could upgrade for a, an extra couple hundred bucks and get a 500 megahertz titanium power book, because I did that. Oh, wow. Had I known. Yeah. It, and it cost you a pretty penny more. <laughs> yeah, I got mine pretty much as soon as it came out. And I wasn't aware of the upgrade option. Otherwise, I might well have done that. But I loved that machine. And at that time, I wasn't developing games. I was actually running a startup, which failed miserably, crashed and burned. But I learned a lot of lessons from that. And the thing thing I, I decided was now that I'm running a startup, I'm going to use the machine that I want to use. And this looks cool. And it seemed like quite a big leap to switch from the tried and tested PC to this brand new untested technology, because when it launched, it was with 10.0, which was just awful. And 10.1 was a heck of a lot better. So so that was cool. But, you know, the Microsoft software was available. 
there was the mail client entourage. So I had my email and it just did everything so much better. You know, as a game developer, you spend a lot of time trying to ensure that the presentation, the responsiveness, the entire UX is spotless, right? And the thing that I really loved about switching to the Mac was this is almost like a console experience, but in in the workplace. It, everything felt smooth. Nothing crashed. You know, I was coming from a world where the PCs were so bad that actually there's there's an interesting story, which I probably won't bore you with, where a PC caused me to end up in hospital for a couple of days. <laughs> oh, wait a oh second. No, I think, I think we've got to hear that story at some point. Yeah, yeah. All right, give us the, the short version. I need to know how this happened. Okay, the short version is I tried to install a version of OS2 on one of my PCs, and this required me to feed it with about, I don't know, 37 floppy disks. Yeah. And no matter what I did, it kept crashing, and I needed to do all kinds of hard resetting and uh, boot sector resetting and so on. But the thing is, I'm I'm a relentless kind of guy. I don't like to give up. And two and a half days in, without any sleep, without much food, I was still going. And eventually I just collapsed. So I had to go to hospital. <laughs> Must feed floppy disks. Remember when you used to get Microsoft Word and it was like 32 disks? Oh, yeah. No. Games too. <laughs> I mean, that's not the PC's fault, right? But... The the thing is, the PC had a reputation for being extremely unstable and crashing. You've got to remember, I loved the PC. I was a PC programmer. You know, I, I cut my teeth programming uh, 8086 Assembler. I did 386 Assembler. I did some high-performance stuff in it. But the, th- the thing just kept crashing, you know, constantly crashing. You're always fighting against that. It was, it was like a really old temperamental machine, that whole architecture. It's built on layer upon layer of craft. I remember reading a brilliant book called Unauthorized Windows 95 by Andrew Shulman. Microsoft didn't like Shulman after that, but basically he showed how even a 32-bit Windows was sitting on effectively a DOS layer. So this thing was just, it was always ready to crash and burn. And the thing I loved about the Mac was you never had that. It was rock steady. The machine was rock steady. You picked it up from one corner and the thing didn't creak like it was about to break, you know, like a PC laptop would. Everything about it was classy. So once I switched, I think it was circa 2000, 2001, I never looked back. Well, 2001 was in that Titanium Power Book came out. So if that's the one you switched with, that would be about the right time. Yep. We, you know, when we first started the show, we would get frequently emails from people saying, hey, I've switched over from PC to Mac. I just need to know, you know, when am I supposed to do my six month nuke and pave? You know, because people that were on PC were just trained that every six months your system would be irretrievably broken. And the only way to fix it was to wipe it out entirely and start over again. And I remember <laughs> writing those emails. People, no, you don't really need to do that with a Mac. And we don't hear that as often anymore. I think a lot of people have kind of figured it out, but but it, it was kind of rough back then. And, and I do think Windows is probably a lot better than it used to be, even though I don't spend a lot of time with it, so I couldn't really tell you. Um, the uh, But it is it is funny how much this stuff has changed over the years. And and one thing I thought when we were talking on the, the pre-show call, when you were telling me about this stuff, was it's very similar to the legal profession. I mean, for so long, the, the Mac was considered kind of a toy or something out there. 
but but it is that experience. It is that console experience in a lot of ways. And that's one of the reasons people love it because you just, it gets out of your way and lets you get your work done. And that's frankly one of the reasons some people don't like Macs because they want to be able to have more customization and they want to get in there and, and change things around where Mac is in a lot of ways, Apple makes what they believe is the best decision for you. And it, it, going around that isn't necessarily very easy. So it, it, I think even to this day, that kind of trait still defines the Apple ecosystem. Well, the thing is, you know, the PC will let you get work done, no doubt about that. But the thing about the Mac is you'll feel good about doing that work. The machine makes you feel good about it. Everything about it is smoother. I mean, even down to moving windows around, no matter how much power you throw at a PC, for some reason, there's always this kind of slight imprecision and yet and inconsistency as well. And yet with a Mac, you never get that. And it's only when you switch on a daily basis between the two machines, as I have to do, that you notice that inherent smoothness that comes as a result of a manufacturer owning everything about the machine from, as as my American cousins say, from soup to nuts. Well, I, I went into the Microsoft store recently, and, you know, they have that new... Um, Thanks all the Surface Pro. It looks like an iMac, but it has a very ingenious hinge in it. And the thing tilts down to where it almost lays on the desk. So you can use a pen to write on it, or you can lift it up and treat it like an iMac. And I just wanted to kind of get a feel for that. So I spent like 30 minutes in there playing with it. And it's like, it, it is innovative and it is interesting. I don't know if I would want that on my desk, but it is, is absolutely worth trying out. Uh, but the problem was little things like just you know, the windows closing speed. And it's like, I kept bumping into these little things that I had forgot that happened on windows. I'm like, Oh yeah. And I think part of it is that particular machine is, is underpowered, but, but just the, U, the general UI stuff does need extra power, I guess, even in 2017. All right. So let's talk about your gear. Shahid, you're using uh, quite a few different pieces of Apple hardware. So before we start on how you're using, let's talk about what you have. Yeah, so I've really bought into the whole ecosystem. Right now, I'm on my late 2016 MacBook Pro 15 with the Radeon 460, I believe. I upgraded uh, to to get that extra bit of GPU power for for games and, you know, for, for some of the stuff that uses Metal. Interestingly, I've used that side of it very little, but I thought, you know, what the hey, let's let's go with something that I'm going to be able to keep for a while. Now, now are you are you cranky about the uh, the new MacBooks? There's a lot of people that don't like the keyboards and the Touch Bar and all that stuff. What's your feeling? Well, you know, I like this Mac, um, and I like the keyboard, but I I see it as a case of design fundamentalism, where the the whole thing feels like a concept machine. You know, like you get concept cars. They're, they're meant to be showpieces. They're meant to signal the way, but they're not meant to be the thing that everybody uses every day. And I felt like the last iteration of the MacBook was really, really good. And this iteration seems to have just gone a bit too design purist. You know, that's why I call it design fundamentalism. It's not the kind of machine you would expect a product designer to have put out. It irks me that there is no SD card slot. You know, whatever they say about it, I I really don't want to be hanging a cable or a dongle off to do something that a lot of, I mean, it's a MacBook Pro, you know, you're meant to be able to interface with modern cameras. And it's just a pain to do that. 
So I find myself, instead of using the MacBook Pro for downloading my enormous photos from my uh, from my decent camera, my SLR camera, instead of instead of using that, I'll go to the iMac. You know, I have a 27-inch iMac as well. It's a late 2015 model, which is pretty decent. But, you know, there you just put the card in and uh, in it goes into Aperture and, and everything's nice and smooth. Whereas on this, you have the USB-Cs. USB-Cs I can live with. The keyboard, a lot of people don't like it. I'm okay with it, but I would still rather have just a bit more tactile feedback, if that were possible. It seems increasingly clear that regardless of what you think about the design of the keyboard or the feel of it, that a lot of people are having mechanical issues with it. I mean, Stephen Hackett on this network had one go bad, and uh, on the uh, original macbook adorable in our family we've had to get the keyboard replaced a couple times under warranty so i i'm worried about that that that's going to be just an issue that's going to be linger with these computers for years but um but i i think that's really separate from whether or not you like the thin design you use an imac you use an imac too right yeah i do i've uh the 27 inch 5k retina job and that's beautiful just a sensational machine. I've used that for about two years now. It's never missed a beat. It does absolutely everything. You can throw anything at it and it will just do it. You know, it's for me so far the best desktop machine ever made. That's saying something because because you're a game developer and I imagine you've got quite a few probably pretty beefy PCs sitting around that you need to use for game development. I do indeed. I mean, they're great machines. They're great workhorses. You know, if anything could be described as a truck, then the PCs that I have are trucks. I would say that the the iMac and the MacBook are more like, you know, the Tesla truck that just got announced. Take a truck and make everything that was wrong about it right. <laughs> and that's that's your Mac and um, and what have you. But yeah, I have a couple of decent PCs. I have an Alienware Area 51, which is as otherworldly as it sounds in terms of performance, it's just blisteringly fast. And and there's nothing that it won't do extremely quickly. Like if I had a really big uh, Premiere Pro job, then I would probably want to assign that to the um, the, the PC desktop. I also have a Razer, um, razor blade laptop which is one of the very few laptops that allows you to run vr because it has a graphics chip that's more than capable of supporting it and it has of course three usb c um sorry three usb three um sockets which allow it to be used with the oculus rift i mean apart from that also got all the other uh ios stuff um which i think if you're a a Mac lover, a kind of de rigueur, right? So I have the iPad Pro 12.9, which I got about two years ago. Was it two years ago? Maybe a year ago. And then now I have the iPad Pro 10.5 inch with the Apple Pencil and the smart uh, mocha-coloured Apple leather case, which I just adore. Now, I know we'll talk a little more in detail about what you're doing on what machines, but in general, are you sliding back and forth? between the Mac and the PC and iOS regularly, or do you tend to have dedicated tasks on different devices? Yeah, that's a great question. I have found myself doing certain things on certain machines. I kind of restrict 
um, the PC to do as little as I need to do on it. And I will do everything else I possibly can on the Mac that's work-related. Anything creative, I tend to use the iPad for. And I'm increasingly using my iPhone 10 as well. I got this nice little Microsoft extended keyboard for it, and I use it with a stand. And, you know, sometimes I'll just prop that up. And the great thing about it is if you need to nip out, you can just pop that keyboard in your pocket, the stand in your pocket, iPhone 10 in your pocket. You don't have to think. You go. And if you're at a cafe, if you're going to meet someone, you can just get the keyboard out, start typing some stuff in, make some notes. You know, it's absolutely fantastic for that. So it it, it always marvels me how how big guys' pockets are. I mean, you guys you guys got some big old cargo pants that you're wearing. I mean, David <laughs> David keeps all of his photography gear in his pockets, and you've got keyboards <laughs> in your pocket. You know, I mean. <laughs> Hey, it's a folding keyboard, uh, but you're right. It's a big pocket. <laughs> Katie, now, you did lose an iPhone in your Scotty vest once. I was there. I know. But, I mean, come on. That was a Scotty vest. But... <laughs> okay, now, wait a second. I, you said you have a Microsoft extended keyboard that you keep in your pocket? I don't keep it there. I put it there if I need to go <laughs> need to go out in a rush and don't well, want to take a bag. I, see, in my mind, Microsoft extended keyboard is this big plastic monstrosity like a battleship that has a number pad on it. I mean, what what are you talking about, Shahid? I've never heard of this. It's this Bluetooth. We're, we're going to need Bluetooth a link for thing. the show notes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get, maybe, maybe it's not called the extended keyboard, but it's the one that folds in two and it allows you to switch between two um bluetooth devices and it is it, you know it's pocketable it's smaller than one of those new kindle oasis things you know yeah i it's i i've just found it's the microsoft universal foldable keyboard that's the one that's that the is really clever it's awesome and you know what it's actually it actually feels better than the ipad smart keyboard i kid you not oh really yeah yeah how funny. I don't think it'll fit in Katie's pocket. It might fit in her Scotty vest. It still requires large pockets. Yeah, it does. Well, it's only folded in half. So what a great <laughs> idea. I'd never even heard of this device. That's cool. Yeah, And I guess for the nerds out there, if you really want to get super hardware, um, gamers have always had the best hardware. But now with the world of virtual reality starting to arrive, and I'm assuming Shahid is probably doing a little work on that. I don't know if you can talk about it or not. But the... um. But you got to have, you know, blazing hot, fast hardware to, like, work on that stuff. Yeah, totally. I mean, the, the PCs are really set up for that. If you if you want to run Rift stuff, then you really do need that. Having said that, I haven't tried yet with um, Metal 2, which is in High Sierra, which is meant to support certainly the Vive, uh, but quite possibly the Rift as well. Because, of course, there, you know, there was that famous statement before from uh, Oculus's former, um, well, he's still the founder, but, you know, he kind of left the company. Um, Palmer Lucky came out with, as long as I'm around, this thing won't run on Macs are just not powerful enough, which is not entirely true. It's just a, a matter of focus for Apple. If you put the right sort of GPU in, if you put the uh, requisite number of USB th uh, sockets, then there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't run um, a Rift or a Vive on, on a suitable Mac device. And in fact, when the Rift started out, it was running on both, but they just stopped supporting the beta. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Making Light, the subscription candle service from Middle Davids that can help you get more productive or make you a rock star when it comes to giving holiday gifts. Use offer code MPU10 to get $10 off your new subscription. 
For years now, I've been a subscriber to Middle David's Making Light Candle subscription. Every month they send me a couple candles and I use them to get my hard work done. I've been thinking a lot lately about the deep work that I do, the stuff that's really important to me, and I use these candles as a sort of ritual. So I want to make sure I only light the candles when I'm doing the hard work and the stuff that I'm really excited about. It sounds silly, but motivations like this can really help you. I like the ritual of lighting the candle, then digging in and doing the work, and then blowing out the candle when I'm ready to take a break. You'd be surprised how well this works. Uh, this month, I'm burning through my favorite green tea candle from Middle David's while I work on my next book. The vast majority of people who try a Middle David's subscription stick with it. In a world full of technology, this provides a fantastic analog motivational tool. You can literally see the progress of your big project as the candle burns down. Dan, the proprietor, is a candle geek and also a Mac geek and Mac Power Users listener, and he obsesses on candles like I do productivity apps. The candles are 100% botanical soy wax, not paraffin, which is a petrochemical, and the wicks are cotton woven with no metals. They are great candles, and with a subscription, you get two every month, along with a box of matches and a sample of the next month's scent. They even send you a handwritten note, which I really enjoy. These candles are definitely one of my productivity hacks, and they make a big difference for me. I think you should go ahead and try them out yourself. And don't forget it's December. If you're having trouble coming up with an idea for a good gift for someone in your life, Middle David's Making Light Candle subscriptions are a great gift. They have a variety of different subscription options, and we've heard from listeners that bought these in the past and are hooked as well. Whether purchasing for yourself or someone else, you can't go wrong. So head over to makinglight.us and get your candle order in today and use the offer code MPU10 to get $10 off. Now, Shahid, I know you do most of your non-game development stuff on the Mac, but the uh, you've got to be looking at the iMac Pro and scratching your head a little bit, right? I am scratching my head, but I fear it will also scratch my wallet significantly. I, I can't <laughs> imagine how much it's going to cost. I just... <laughs> Uh, I had a listener write me just a few weeks ago saying, should I get that one or should I just get a decked out standard iMac? And and as I talked to him back and forth in email, I realized and learned what he did. I said, you don't need the iMac Pro. I mean, you just don't need it. And honestly, I think the entry level price for the iMac Pro, you're going to be able to get a standard iMac that's going to be loaded beyond recognition, you know, full SSD, probably two terabytes of SSD and megatons of RAM. I think you're probably fine. <laughs> but um, but but someone like you, I, I could see someone like you saying, no, that makes sense because I am going to do game development for the Mac and I do need to have something that can really keep up so so you you have my blessing if nothing else you can tell tell your wife that i i will i will do exactly that in <laughs> fact yeah i will i will play this um podcast to my accountant and yeah there um, you go yeah fantastic thank you david you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you i would imagine that with the imac pro you're finally going to have a machine that's powerful enough to run parallels desktop and and get decent speed emulation of a PC and run PC, uh, Mac stuff side by side. Um, yeah, it's not bad at the moment, but let's face it, it's not fast enough to do really high performance stuff. Now, now going back to your iPads, you have a collection here in the multi-pad club. Uh, is that just because they came out with a new one and you decided to go to 10.5? I mean, do you have different tasks for the 12.9 versus the 10.5 or... Is it just you've got the old one and the new one? It's a bit of both. I loved the old one. The problem was it was a little bit unwieldy. 
you know, combined with the smart keyboard, it was actually bigger and heavier than my original MacBook Adorable. And and that was kind of a problem for me because I wanted something that would just easily slide into my Tom Bean bag. See, I mentioned the Tom Bean bag. Absolutely love go. Tom Bean I bags. I got that. Yeah, I got a co-pilot and I also have an empire builder and they are just the best. But yeah, so uh, I needed something that would easily slide into my uh, Tom Bean co-pilot and the 10.5 inch does that. But not only that, I just found it a little unwieldy. You know, when I wanted to read, that 12.9 inch is a bit tough to hold with one hand. Laying in bed reading it is, I'm afraid I'm going to break my nose with it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I have actually dropped it on the side of my head. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know what? Maybe time to look at the 10.5 inch. But okay, let's let's be completely honest here. I love the idea of an iPad that had a 120 hertz refresh rate and where the screen had the, the true tone stuff and it was just a lot easier to read and you had that butter smooth scrolling if it wasn't butter smooth already. So so that was a big reason too. But yeah, I find the lightness, the thinness of the 10.5 a lot more pleasing and i just love that screen and the and the pencil responsiveness as well because i love the apple pencil i use that a lot and it's absolutely fantastic for that yeah with the increase in size from 9.7 to 10.5 it is getting harder to recommend the 12.9 to people you have to have a really good reason to want the big one at this point like when they came with the 10.5 i i bought the 10.5 i've kept my old 12.9 i didn't upgrade it i didn't feel i needed to upgrade it but the uh but I still use it on occasion, but but that 10.5 is really nice. You know what the 12.9 is really good for is having apps side by side. Multitasking. Yeah. yeah, I found myself doing that very rarely. It was just, for me, it was an edge case. I love the the focus that you get with an iPad running one app at a time. And I didn't want to do that kind of work. It's It's much more of a pain to manage that kind of workflow on an iPad than it is on a Mac. Yeah, like just this morning I was doing a lot of email processing where I was dragging them into OmniFocus and dragging them into calendar events and everything. And I, I was working on the 12.9 because having two apps side by side on 12.9 is, is easier than it is on the, the smaller one. All right. Um, we, we've talked about the fact that you're a game developer. We're going to get later to what the tools are involved with that. But, but as you explained to me, you do a lot more than just write the games. You're, you're on the business side, you're on the development side in terms of business development. And uh, you spend a lot of time running, you know, really a, a business using the, the this gear. And I, I thought, let's just take a minute to start talking about that type of stuff, the support stuff that you do on your Mac and uh, what apps work for you. Sure. Um, yeah, so I have a bunch of, uh, they're not really side hustles. They're, they're part of a composite working life. And I think this is a, a relatively modern thing that it's become really acceptable to have this composite working life and to have a number of different hats that one wears, especially if you've gained a fair amount of experience over the years. It seems much more achievable now to do that. And because of that, because I have like uh, I have these uh, mentoring roles, uh, one which I do for Creative England, which... Uh, is a kind of like a grassroots organization. Uh, then I do stuff for PlayStation in Spain, you know, where they run a hot house for developers. And in in this kind of environment, and for my uh, board work for Double Eleven, who are one of the best developers in the world, a Mac is fine, or an iPad is fine, you know. 
Um, and I find myself using stuff like uh, Ulysses an awful lot. I subscribe to Ulysses. I think it's one of the best pieces of software ever made. I've been using Markdown as well for so long. I used to, I think it kind of used to bemuse my bosses that I would do a number of different versions of a report for them. I would send them a plain Markdown text so that they could read it easily on their BlackBerry. And then I would export it for PDF and they'd be able to see the PDF, you know. Um, uh, but they kind of got used to it and I've been using it ever since. So any uh, text editing app that supports Markdown, I will usually have a look at. And the ones that I use the most are probably uh, Ulysses and uh, IA Writer. Okay, now let's just talk about Ulysses for one second because... This is an app that uh, can be used in many different ways. You know, I, I, we talk to people who write novels with it and people who do kind of day-to-day stuff. What what type of structure do you use in Ulysses? I mean, do you just like write a report and then delete it? Or do you have like, I guess I would say for lack of a better word, text banks? What's your methodology? I have um, quite a complex folder structure where I will have diff- all of the different areas of my life, personal and business, mapped out to their own folder structure, which I now retain in iCloud because it just seems to, Ulysses seems to handle iCloud really well now. Yeah, they were some of the original, like they were the original guys down that well. So, and they have the scars to show it. But at this point, yeah, I use everything in iCloud too, and I have no problems. Yeah, I used to use it for Dropbox and yeah, it was it was okay, but with iCloud it's really fast, and I I enjoy that tremendously. But I'll do all kinds of different things. I'll I will have like for example, let's say we're talking about PlayStation Spain. I have a folder for PlayStation Spain, and within that I will have documents, and those documents will usually be minutes of meetings that I have over there or notes that I've got to take, um, and I I can then very easily mark that up and send it off as something that looks a lot more pretty. Sometimes I'll do, for example, if I go to an event and I take detailed notes, I'll take for every uh, lecture, I will create a new page. And later on, when I get back, I will add images and so on. And, you know, I'll I'll even go down the whole uh, reference link thing and, and make everything very neat and tidy. Whereas when I'm at the event, I'll use it very much like a quick organized scratch pad and it works great for that. But the great thing about it, of course, is you can make everything look totally professional when when the time pressure is not high. It, it is impressive. And that, now Scrivener just came out with version three hmm. and Scri- Scrivener is good for different things. Like we talked about this last year on the show where like if you need PDF references, there's some things it does that Ulysses doesn't, but just for a clean environment for words i use ulysses every day it just uh, i've really in the last year i think i've really turned onto that app yeah i've been using it for a while but it's become i think since just before they turned to the subscription model it became indispensable it really became classy you know now now ia writer is more of a lightweight writing application how does that fit in the mix for you it is that but it's also utterly beautiful that font is to die for and when i just want to knock something out very quickly and it's very specific and very focused and i have no idea where it's going to end up like creative writing for example i'll start in ia writer the other thing about ia writer maybe i'm missing something here so perhaps you being the experts uh, can advise me but with ia writer on the iphone 10 
it's got pure black, whereas Ulysses doesn't seem to. I mean, I've got the dark mode on in uh, Ulysses, and it's just slightly off, and it's got that grey that they used to use everywhere, which you're supposed to use in colour theory. But when it comes to OLED screens, of course, you want pure black, and it just looks stunning. And then they, they use this shade of blue in IA Writer for the cursor, which is just so delicious. So I totally relate. Yeah, that 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 kind of st- <laughs> that kind of stuff matters to me. I know it sounds crazy, but the font, the cursor, uh, the the white text on the black background, you use that, and you you feel like you're in the future. You know. <laughs> yes, I I you know we haven't talked about this on the show, but since the iPhone 10 arrived, I'm acutely aware of my apps that have a dark mode that uses pure black for the background, and apps that use some shade of gray. You know. You know, e- even uh, OmniFocus in the dark mode, if you look at the top, you can see the notch just barely because I don't think it's pure black. Um, and the, um, but like, like Reader with two E's was an RSS app. I've switched to that one lately because their dark mode is pure black. And that really matters to me. I, I can't, I don't know why that's such a big deal. Maybe it's just because the OLED screen is new. Katie, does it drive you nuts when you have a gray background on an OLED screen now? It doesn't bother me as much, but I have noticed that I've been switching over to the dark modes for the apps that that truly support the true black. Like Overcast recently came out with a nice update. Yeah, it, it, I mean, even my um my uh, the background I used to always use a blurred background on my home screen, you know, and and now I just use an all an, an all black image, and then the notch just just disappears while I'm in the home yeah. screen. Now I just I don't know, think yeah. the notch bothers me as much as it bothers you though. Well, I, I am I am super aware of these apps that are, are now starting to adopt the kind of the OLED friendly black background. And, and Shahid, I totally understand where you're coming from on that. <laughs> it's uh, also, you know, that the whole I, I become energy obsessive, uh, as I suspect uh, a lot of people have in in the tech world not just for environmental reasons but just because it's another number to geek out about so i'm forever going up to my battery uh level on the mac and looking to see what's using significant energy you know pcs don't do that that's the other advantage that apple has of designing everything top to bottom it can give you a really clear picture of what's using what and the thing about oled of course is you turn those pixels off you're draining the battery a lot less because unlike a tft screen where you've got you know, backlight that affects even black. You don't have that. If a pixel is off, it's truly off. And I, I don't know if you saw, there was a test somebody ran recently uh, off a, a Reddit page that showed battery use dropping to 85, uh, sorry, the battery drain going down to 85% with a black screen and something like 26% if they were using an all white screen, which is just crazy. Really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't see that. Yeah. Yeah. There was someone who was using like invert colors and, and everything as like a super, yeah. That's it. a super low power mode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it. And, and I'm thinking, and just to kind of circle back a little bit, you were talking about the font in IA Writer. I want to say that they open source that new font, and I re- I can't remember where I read that, but I read it somewhere. I'm going to try and see if I can't track it down and put a link in the show notes. But don't tell Federico that. I understand he spent an absolute fortune licensing the font just so that he could use it in Ulysses, which I thought was a genius move. You know, he loves that font so much as well that he wanted to see it in Ulysses. He does the whole customization thing. So, um, yeah, if they did open source it, <laughs> do let me know. <laughs> yeah, they have a new font it's called Duo Space, and and um, 
I will track it down. I, I'm going to try and get this in the show notes, but it's IA Radar has their own font, and I think they open sourced it, which would be great. Um, but that, that is a good idea to move move their font into Ulysses. But anyway, uh, so so you're uh, so that's you're doing a lot of writing, but it sounds like you're doing um, that all mainly on on Mac. Now, both of those apps you've mentioned also work on iOS. Are you do you work between them? I mean, is there kind of like a cutoff? Yeah, there? yeah, totally, totally. So I will use uh, Ulysses on my iPhone. I'll use Ulysses on my iPad. In fact, most of my writing when I'm uh, in the field is done on iPad or iPhone. And uh, my more serious writing is done on the Mac. So anything that requires some thought, I will, I will want to use a really, really good keyboard. That's really important to me. Any long-form text or uh, long-form editing process, I will always want a decent keyboard for that. I don't really like the smart keyboard very much. It's usable, but, you know, I'm old school. I, I was raised in an era where the keys clicked like machine guns, and I still like that kind of feel. So what keyboard are you using? Um, well, uh, for for my PCs, which I use predominantly for work, I use the Philco Majestouch with Cherry Brown uh, switches, MX Brown switches, and they are in between the uh, lighter touch switches and the clicky blue switches. The brown switches have kind of got a mid soft click. Uh, on the PC, I have a Philco Majestouch 10 keyless Ninja. <laughs> <laughs> with apologies <laughs> that's a, such a terrible name but the great thing about it is it has no legends on the keycap so i had to learn to touch type to use it which i always wanted to do anyway so that's fantastic and then i have one of those mini ones for uh for my laptop which i use uh which is also fantastic but um it has the the great thing about that is the because it has no uh no real space for a a number pad. If you want to use the cursor keys really quickly, you can use them with the left hand because there's a function button and then it puts the cursor cluster over ESDF, I think, which means that you can use it very much like, um, have you seen that uh, Kickstarter for the keyboard.io keyboard, which is an amazing keyboard, which, which is built out of two butterfly planks of wood. And what they've done is they've used a thumb uh uh, control switch instead of you know when when you're trying to type uh, when you're trying to touch type you often have to extend your pinky to to access certain stuff well you don't have to do that with the keyboard io keyboard which is a staggeringly good keyboard i love one of those but i'm going to wait until they're shipping to the uk so the this philco majest touch uh, portable, the Bluetooth one that I use, also has that kind of arrangement, which means that you never have to move your right hand to the far right to move around the cursor cluster. You can keep your hands on the home row all the time. The reason this is important, because I know on the Mac, um, you can use Emacs keys. So on the Mac, what I've done is I've reconfigured my caps lock key, uh, which I learned off your show, by the way, because I followed uh, Brett Terpstra yeah, off Brett, your show. That's Brett's thing. Yeah. 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 So he, he's turned it into a hyper key, right? Well, I use, I'm not that advanced. I just configured it to be, um, a control key. Uh, was it a control key? Yeah. Control key. So that means that I now use uh, control P control N to go up and down, uh, control P and control B, I think, sorry, control B 
Oh, completely forgotten now. I, I can type it, but I can't remember the names. It's all in my muscle memory. Yeah, I have the same thing with text expander snippets. If you ask me what my snippets are, I couldn't tell you. But if you click <laughs> on the keyboard, they just roll out of my They just fingers. come out, right? They just yeah. come out. But yeah, so, so I use that kind of stuff. Um, it's really important because if you're spending all your time, you know this, uh, both of you being highly experienced professionals if you don't look after your hands you will get rsi and i do have rsi so i learned to touch type and the mac was really great for that but the, sadly the pc didn't have anything like it so i'm spending all this time in the pc using the cursor cluster and my rsi is getting worse and worse and worse until i discovered this uh philco keyboard which let me kind of get slightly back to the Mac world without causing too many problems. But that's the great thing about the Mac. You don't have to worry about that. You just remap the keyboard, use the Emacs key codes, and and you're off to the races. Whenever someone starts talking to me about cherry switches, you know, the different distinctions of cherry switches, this just reminds me of how much, you know, I love us nerds because we get so detailed about this stuff. Like there's like six or seven different kinds of cherry switches, right? I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not just a, it's a quality switch, but they've got the quiet one, the loud one, the springy one, the stiff one, you know, the clickety clack one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but this is important stuff, you know, because if you think about, let, let's say you're a guitarist, imagine a guitarist being told to put up with, um, really high action on the guitar and being told that's just the way it is you got to play that guitar the way it is and and the other thing being told that their strings always have to be rough on their fingers well this is a tool of their trade this is the primary interface to the machine if you don't get that interface absolutely right well you're setting yourself up for potentially 30 plus years of pain why you don't have to put yourself through that. Find the thing that you like and stick with it. And that's what I love about your show as well. I've learned new things year in, year out that have actually improved the quality of my life. So thank you both. Well, our goal is to give somebody a nugget with every show they listen to. So hopefully we can today for anybody listening right now. But you know, the um, but but what you just said summarizes so well why people are made crazy by the new MacBook keyboard. Because... If it works for you, that's great. It doesn't bother me that much, but I'm I'm kind of like keyboard agnostic. I'll type on anything. But if if it doesn't work for you, that's just maddening because that's the only keyboard you get on a MacBook. There's no way to buy around that. You can't pay extra or whatever, you know. And um, so I understand the frustration over it. So my question is, with this uh, fancy Cherry Switch keyboard, can you fold that up and put it in your pocket? <laughs> I wish. And sadly, it weighs a ton. So I'm afraid it's not very portable, even though it is quite small. It's got a lot of metal in there. I wonder if you could, like, sew one into a jacket, you know, where so... Because you live in London. It's cold there, right? So I, I so do. Just, I do. Just go with me on this. You get into Starbucks in downtown London, you just take off your jacket and lay it on the table, and Cherry Switches just pop out. That's a good uh, yeah, idea. Somebody should make yeah, that. Uh, maybe my Scotty vest. <laughs> yeah, Katie's got one. She's not using anymore. <laughs> lost, lost too many electronics in it. <laughs> maybe there's a cherry switch in there. <laughs> This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by Gazelle, the leading online marketplace for buying and selling used electronics. You can learn more over at gazelle.com. 
So are you looking to upgrade your iPhone? You know, there are a couple of new versions to choose from, or perhaps is someone in your life going to get a new device this Christmas? Well, Gazelle has you covered. They have not only affordable, gently used personal devices, but they will also give you the best value for your current phone. So you can head on over to gazelle.com, find out exactly what your phone is worth, and Gazelle will lock in that price long enough for you to make a confident buying decision about your next iPhone. So head on over to Gazelle. You can create a customized offer. And while you're there, check out the huge inventory of iPhones, iPads, and Samsung phones that they have available for purchase. So if you decide that you want to buy a phone, maybe for yourself or for somebody else this holiday season, but you don't want to get locked into a contract, they have devices available in good, fair, and excellent condition. Good phones show some gentle signs of wear and tear, but they offer consumers great prices on great devices. And all of their devices have been put through a rigorous 30-point inspection process, ensuring that they are in perfect working order. Devices are available to support all the major character carriers, whether it's AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, or Sprint. And getting an online offer for your existing device is free. If you decide that you want to sell your device on Gazelle, simply find your gadget on Gazelle, answer a few easy questions, and you'll get an instant quote. And during iPhone season, Gazelle is going to be locking in your quote long enough that you can decide which iPhone best suits you without sacrificing the value of your current phone. And of course, as always, with Gazelle, payments are fast. You can get paid in the mail with an Amazon gift card in your inbox or directly to your PayPal account. So give new life to use electronics. You can either trade in for cash or buy certified pre-owned by going to gazelle.com. That's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com today. And make sure you let them know that Mac Power users sent you. I, I was thinking about, I, I've recently been reading this book by um, Cal Newport. It's about deep work. You know, the idea of there's certain kinds of work that really involves what you're really passionate about and getting in and making sure you make time for that. But there's also shallow work, you know, the stuff that, that you, you know, that is important to you, but it's not the actual building of the game in Shahid's case. And it sounds to me like you're doing a lot of your shallow work on the Mac. You know, you're getting all that other stuff done on the Mac. I am. And sometimes I'm doing deep work on it as well. I've read um, a couple of Newport books, including deep work, which you know, I, I totally buy into. I have to set my environment up very carefully to allow me to do that. And I also wake up ridiculously early, which we we covered on free agents. But um, all of this, all of these little hacks I use to, I, I, I guess, to prioritize my focus time. So for example, if I'm doing a mind map, let's say I'm researching a talk, I'll do a mind map and I will usually switch between the iPad when I'm mobile. So I'll use the iPad to refine my talk. Sometimes I'll use an, uh, use my iPhone to put the first four or five nodes in as I'm traveling or talking to someone about doing a talk. But then I will use my Mac to really build it out. And for that, you know, it, it's the Mac and it's hours of research, thinking, rearranging, freeform drawing, and so on. So, so for me, that is pretty important in terms of uh, the deep work. But you're right. I mean, dominantly, the the Mac and the iOS stuff is more for, for shallow work. Sometimes I'll use the iPad for the more creative stuff, but it's very rarely deep. It's just stuff that occurs to me and, and comes out and so on. Now, now, what do you use for your mind mapping? I use both uh, iThoughts um, and I use iThoughts across the board. So I've got iThoughts X on uh the mac i recently bought 
a PC license as well because I did it for the PC. But the amount of times I've used it on the PC in the months that I bought it, zero. So I love a great idea. Right? <laughs> I got it because I thought, you know, I'll just share that, share these across Dropbox. But as I said, I'd like to use the PC as little as I can possibly get away with. That's just kind of like one of those radioactivity clear up jobs. You know, I want to put on my, um, my hazmat suit, get in and get out as quickly as possible before I end up in hospital. <laughs> uh, I, I think so, for someone, you know, like, like you and me, we both were forced to work on PCs through the day job for a while. It's a bit of like um, post-traumatic stress. It's like, I really don't want to be on that computer if I don't have to. Uh, but what other, you know, what other decent solutions are there? That's the other thing about the, the Mac and iOS world, the Apple world, is the quality of the apps it's just phenomenal. You don't get anything like day one of the PC. You don't get anything like, uh, I don't know, let, let me think of another fantastic app that I use all the time, like IA Writer. You don't get that on the PC. You don't get Ulysses on the PC. These are absolutely stunning pieces of work. Uh, but yeah, going back to mind maps, uh, I thoughts I use for really detailed stuff, mind node for sketching stuff out because it just looks so pretty out of the box. Yeah, they just came out with version 5, just as we're uh, recording this show. Yeah, I saw that. I tried to find it on the App Store, but it doesn't look like it's uh, out. Maybe I need to wait for it to update or something. Yeah, maybe it hasn't. I, I did the uh, the product videos for them, and it was as I was getting sick. So if you listen to those videos, you can just hear the digression of my voice over the course <laughs> of six videos. <laughs> and I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I got sick. You know what I'm going to do. The... um. The uh, you're also a big Apple Notes proponent, right? I use Apple Notes quite a lot for reference notes. These are notes that I need to, um, where where I have a bunch of stuff that I need to go back to to look at. It's interesting, actually. I don't seem to use Ulysses for that. Ulysses, I don't go back to for reference, but Notes I go back to for for reference. So, yeah, that's quite interesting. I, it hadn't occurred to me until I just mentioned it just now, how I use it. But it's very good for that. I mean, for so long, I, I thought of Apple Notes as a joke app. I mean, remember that ridiculous font they had when the iPhone first came out? If, if, if you had told, like, 2008 me that I'd be using Apple Notes on a regular basis, I would have laughed at you. But, you know, times change. Yeah, it's decent. And you can even um, you can even password protect them now, can't you? Uh, Katie keeps telling me they're going to stop developing it, though. So I'm not sure. What no, to do. I, well, I think they're just going to stop at some point. It's going to be fun. They'll 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 get it to a point where it's feature complete, and then you'll then you'll be where you are. Yeah, and then I'll switch to something, and we'll talk about them. How users. Oh my gosh! Then we'll have like a dozen more shows on David's new note search quest. It's never ends yeah it never ends that's good uh, but you know it is interesting shahid what you were saying because like you i use ulysses uh for serious writing and i have a very intricate ulysses kind of um um uh, you know taxonomy of, of files for lack of a better word but then i do use apple notes for like taking notes like as an example if someone calls me on a legal case i have a note for every case in apple notes and i can use my little um text expander snippet to like blow out the date and time string and then write a few notes off while we're the phone. And that could completely work within Ulysses. But for some reason in my head, it makes more sense in Apple notes and um, it's searchable and findable. And it, it is something that I'm not sure why I have distinguished it because I could break that down to just one tool. 
Yeah, same here. We we uh, I I guess it's like having a a tool shed, right? You have sl- maybe you have like 12 different types of saw. You don't have to use the same saw for everything and maybe the differences between adjacent saws is not huge. But it's nice to have something that fits use case just a little bit better than something else. Yeah, I think if you pushed me against a wall and said, you got to tell me why, I I think searching Apple Notes or just like text entry, I think is a little less, the on-ramp's a little shallower with Apple Notes than it is with Ulysses, especially if you were going to try and keep these things with any sort of order. Um, But I don't know. I mean, a lot of people like Bear right now. That's another one I, I tried and I had some issues with. We're going to do a show on that. We keep promising we're going to do, at least I'd like to do a show on it if Katie will let me <laughs> yeah, at some point. Um, I was going to say, we've talked a lot about um, notes and, and writing applications. Um, wh- what about more productivity re- related apps? I mean, I know you've got to get a lot of work done. So in terms of how you're you're managing all the work that you have to do, what types of apps are you using for that? I use a fair amount of Slack. Um, I I try and integrate it with as many things as possible. So I think I have about 15, 20 total Slack channels, and I'm regularly on about seven or eight to coordinate ideas, activity, documents, and, and so on with, with a bunch of different groups of people. Uh, I use Trello. Uh, I'm really pleased that there's a, a Mac Trello app and I don't just have to use a site-specific browser for that. So, so Trello's great. I try and do all of my Trello work on on the Mac if I can. But once it comes to actually, you know, ticking stuff off and moving stuff around, you know, I got to do that on the PC from time to time. And I don't know if there's an app for the PC. I tend to use it on, on the web on the PC, but uh, on the Mac, it's it's definitely Trello. Now, do you use Trello collaboratively with other people, or is it just for yourself? Yeah, I do. I, I use it with other people as well. And Could you give it, us an example? Because some people have heard of Trello. They don't really understand how it works. Just tell us how you use it on like one project. Okay, so I, I did a project recently, which wasn't a game, but it was uh, a project for a game company. And on the game company side, they had a producer who, if you like, is like the team leader. I owned my area of the work, but he and I worked on the Trello board together. Trello is very much like a virtual Kanban system. You know, you've got a bunch of cards and it's a very lightweight way of adhering to agile project management. You could do other kinds of stuff with it as well, but a lot of people in the games field tend to use it as a lightweight project management system. So you'll have a bunch of cards that you create. Each card uh, can have a task or it can have a project on, usually a, uh, a single task that's clearly expressible. And you can have these cards in columns. So you might have a backlog if you want to use some agile terminology. You can have the stuff that you're currently working on. You can have the stuff that's ready for test. And then you can have stuff that's completed all in their own columns. And then what you do is you create your your uh, backlog of cards. These are all of the things that you need to get done in the project. And then you can drag them around and uh, mark them as done or write comments on each of them. And that, that can be a very collaborative process because different users can be invited to each card. So, for example, if you have a task 
that needs to be done by a programmer, you can assign it to the program and the team. If it's a task that needs to be done by an artist, then the producer can assign it to the artist. And when all of the columns are moved into the testing column, they can be assigned to QA people and so on. So uh, having a nice big screen, having like the, the iMac 27-inch screen for Trello is just beautiful because you you don't have anything uh, uh, unless you buy some massive monitor. It's not going to feel as nice on a PC. Yeah, but it is really useful for collaboration. As much as I love OmniFocus, when I work with a remote workers, because I have some people that do work for me remotely, that is, a, those are Trello cards. You know, I have certain things that I can offload to support staff and I have created Trello cards for them. I use them as templates. It, it, I wish the app was better at templates because the way it currently works is you just make a copy of one and it's, it's manual templates. But, but, and the one thing I would add to what Shahid said was uh, you can put whole lists of tasks in there. Like if I have a new corporation I'm forming, there's a list of seven things that one of my assistants does for me. And it's the same checklist every time it's in a Trello card. She gets it. She gets the card. She checks them off as she goes through. And, um, it's uh, it's really useful if if you're looking for a way to work with a team, especially remote teams. I think it's particularly good for them. Do only tasks that go with teams that 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 you are working on with other people go into Trello, and then do you use something else, a personal task management system, or do you? Oh, do you yeah, do both yeah. there? Okay, I I do both. So and anything that that is that requires you to drill down on a project and to create. Uh, a shared system for a project. I will use Trello for because it's lightweight and reasonable. But for all of my own stuff, I use Things 3, the latest version of Things. I was up until quite recently um, an OmniFocus 2 devotee. I learned pretty much everything I know from uh, from you, David, <laughs> watching, your, <laughs> watching your video, which I uh, enjoyed immensely. But I moved to Things 3 and I almost feel ashamed to say this, but it just looked so pretty and it was just so lightweight and it just, you know, I, I just found myself taking longer and longer to look after OmniFocus and I don't find myself looking after things as much. At one point I had something like 1500 plus tasks in OmniFocus scattered across contexts, projects, areas and so on. And I thought, I'm not doing this right. Let's just reboot and that was that was the point at which i thought you know what let's have a look at things maybe it's maybe it suits me better and it does it does suit me better and and of course i go all in you know um I, i've got across all my devices and it works really well for me i you know i the one of the most frequent emails i get from people is they watch my omnifocus course and they get really good at omnifocus and then they say there's a problem and usually the number is much higher than 1500 i mean i get emails from people saying i have 5000 tasks in OmniFocus, I don't know what to do. And, and I, 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 I've, I've got that email so many times, I actually have a snippet response <laughs> because it's just, because, and, and it's really, it's a loving response because I understand exactly how you fall into that trap. And it's just because your computer can track 5,000 tasks doesn't mean you can do 5,000 tasks. And it doesn't matter what tool you use. If you're giving that yourself that much baggage, you're going to you're going to crush yourself. You know, you've got to say no to some things and it, it's hard. I, I still struggle with it myself, but the, um, well, I got to this point in my life where I was throwing everything into OmniFocus. You know, I was emailing stuff in, I was clipping it from all over the place. I just, you know what needs to go into OmniFocus because I, I'm, I, I'm kind of a, 
uh, a mid-core adherent of David Allen's getting things done system. You know, I have the the 43 folders, physical folders as well. I have all of that stuff. I, I have a really excellent filing system. Wow. Then you're more than mid. I don't have the folders. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I do this physically, but I don't do it digitally. Digitally, I've, you, you don't need to do it that way because, you know, you're, you're going to get reminded by setting a reminder on it or setting a date. Um, so the digital stuff really worked well for me. And I, I was kind of letting the system get in the way of what I needed to do. And I, I realized I, I didn't need to put everything into OmniFocus. I just didn't need to do that. So I've decided I'm not going to put everything into things. Not everything belongs there. I'm going to go back to, to basics. And that seems to work a lot better for me. And now what I tend to do is if it's repeating stuff, you know, I'll, I'll have a checklist for it, but I'll keep the checklist in notes or something, you know. Um, and, and the other thing I, I do now is I'll store stuff in day one, uh, before I was just logging stuff, no matter what, I would just put it into OmniFocus and, you know, had that beautiful, if you using OmniFocus on, uh, an iOS device and you had the notes field, you could just full screen it. And that, that gave me license to just put any old thing into <laughs> OmniFocus. Hey, I can just put it all in the notes field, you know? So now instead of doing that, I'll put it into day one. Now I want to put a pin in that point about day one, because I do want to hear how you're using that app, but not yet. Uh, before, because I, I, I know you're a very busy guy. You're speaking at conferences, you're running companies, you're doing all this stuff. How do you handle your email? I use airmail. Um, I'm not a complete convert to it. I started using it across all of the devices I have recently. Uh, I use Fastmail. And I use iCloud and less and less Gmail. I switched from Gmail as my primary email provider to Fastmail a few years ago. I believe it was because of Gabe Weatherhead. Um, he wrote something about Fastmail a while back. And of course, I heard about Gabe through Mac Power users. So, you know, yet more stuff I need to thank you for. Gabe was just on last week. Yeah, yeah. I heard the show. It's a really good show. Uh, I look forward to those. Um, yeah, so I use Fastmail. And uh, that that went really smoothly. I absolutely love it. So I have like seven or eight email accounts, and they're all aliased within Fastmail. Now, now, what was it that led you to leave Gmail? Because a lot of people have trouble leaving Gmail. I was not happy about my entire digital life being under the control of one commercial company. And I found myself increasingly being sucked into that Google world. It, it's not a precise thing I can point a finger to. You know, I, I don't believe Google is evil. I don't believe any corporation is evil. I think it's it, it, it's not the right way of looking at things. You know, people can do evil things individually, but I don't think corporations are inherently evil as such. And I do think there are a lot of awfully, re, awfully good people at, at Google um, who really care about privacy and who who really care about how they look after their users but sometimes when you automate when you use ai when you use like big data things don't always work and what happened to me was many many years ago when my life was in the trash can i had a google adwords account and i tried to do some some of that um internet marketing thing and, you know, it was just a complete and utter failure. This must have been back in 2004, 2005. So I stopped with that. I had an AdWords account with them. 
And what happened was a few years later, four or five years later, I found that my AdWords account had been suspended because of an improper use. But here's the thing, I had not used my AdWords account since 2005. So they were punishing me for a new rule about an old vendor that was being applied retroactively and I was not able to reinstate that account. Maybe I could now, but I just thought, hey, you just took something away from me. I did nothing wrong. The judgment that you applied was retroactive. What happens if you do the same to my Gmail? I mean, all of the things that depended on Gmail at that time for me were were so interlinked with different parts of my life that I thought, if I don't extricate myself now and they do something, I don't know, it might not even have been deliberate. It might not, might just have been some AI decision or some... Most likely that was it. It probably, and there's probably no humans involved at all with that. But that's the problem, right? And I, I just could not trust that. And that made me really concerned. So I, I moved to Facebook. I still have my Gmail account. It's not like I suddenly hate Google or anything. It's just I couldn't trust them. And I wanted to go somewhere where I could trust them a bit more, but also was just a single point of failure, not something that I had access to every one of my details. At that time, I was using Google Talk and Google Mail and Google whatever, you know, pretty much everything. I loved Google. But because of that one, I believe it was a, uh, a robotic clerical error, I was a little bit scared. Yeah, no worries. Now, how long have you been using airmail? I've been using airmail, I think, for, I know, about nine, ten months. Yeah. Well, how, how do you like it? I mean, what, what gets you excited about the app? It's okay. Um, it's not one of my favorite apps. That's not very convincing. It's, I know. I was going to say that's a, that's a resounding <laughs> endorsement. I've Look, I, I think email is fundamentally broken. It's built on really outdated technology. Even IMAP is really outdated. It, all it does is it serves as a way of prioritizing other people's requests on your time. And there doesn't seem to be an email package out there that intelligently analyzes. Uh, you know, I've looked at SaneBox. I've looked at the different plugins and so on I've, I've looked at a number of ways of organizing my uh my email since i had email we're talking about mid 90s and there's never been a satisfactory solution and you know snoozing stuff is not the answer it's going to come back and bite you you know that's not how you organize stuff if you think about how we use um productivity apps like things and OmniFocus and so on, or if you even think back to the core principles of uh, getting things done, snoozing stuff is not really a good idea. You either act on it immediately, you get rid of it. The problem is the cognitive overhead of deciding what to do with an email is not the issue. The cognitive overhead comes with looking at an email and trying to understand where it ranks in your list of priorities. As far as I'm concerned, there really should only be two priorities. The first is, this has to be done today. And the other is, don't worry about it. But there's no email <laughs> package out there that does that for you. And What I really like is an agent that looks at my in inbox and brings stuff to my attention that is genuinely important to me. And the only way that will happen is if I have a clear idea in my head of what my values, what my goals, what my objectives are. They are expressed in an app like Things or OmniFocus. And then that triggers into my email inbox. So there is something relates to a project date that is imminent and is high priority for me as dictated by Things or OmniFocus. It will bubble that email up for me. Now, I don't like the idea 
of giving one company access to all of those things. But I do like the idea of perhaps some machine learning or or other agent sitting in my machine being given access, as long as it's securely on my machine and not in the cloud, to both my priority system, you know, my to-do list, and my email box. And if I, as long as I ensure that my uh, to-do list is ma- is managed correctly and I'm doing my getting things done and so on, it would be very easy for that agent over a period of time to determine what needs my attention and what doesn't, and basically just to get get rid of everything else. And also, you just got to get good at saying no. You know, you, you got to get good at the, when your when your time is so pressed. You you know this, and I'm sure you've had loads of guests who are far busier than me. You've just got to be able to learn to let email go. You know, don't answer all of the email. It's just not worth it. It's so hard, though. It's so hard. I I just did that. We had I had a backlog of Mac Power users listeners email, and I know some of you listening have emailed me months ago, and I haven't responded. And I just, I just archived a bunch of it. I'm sorry. I just don't, I, I'm never going to get another book written if I, if I deal with, I'm doing my best, you know, but Getty and I were just talking, we're, we're asking listeners now to, to reach out to us on Twitter more than email and it's a better medium for it. Yeah. We, we just can't do it anymore. Katie, David, you have busy lives, right? You have busy lives. Nobody has a right to take life units away from you. So I think people need to understand that when they email somebody, they are requesting a unit of your life. You do not owe people that. It's really, really hard to get that across, though. Really hard. Yeah, but in fairness, I mean, the people that are emailing me that listen to the show are just like me. They're nerds like me, and we're kind of part of the tribe together. And if I had time, I actually would enjoy I, – I always enjoy answering emails from listeners because – you know, they're just people like me and Katie and you, and you know, we're all in this together. It's just, it's just a question of there's so little time. I was at WWDC last year and I asked Ken Case, who's one of the the principals at Omni Group. I said, could you add a feature to OmniFocus that if I defer a task five times, OmniFocus just deletes the underlying project from my database, you know, just, <laughs> you know, just like a nuclear thing and no warning, just, you know, I, I couldn't keep, you know, if I keep deferring it, that means I'm not, I'm never going to do it. And I, I'm not, I don't have enough big boy shoes to apparently accept that. So I just need the software to do it for me. He looked at me like I was crazy, but you know, and, and it really wouldn't work for me, but part of me wants that feature so badly. No, that, that that's the kind of thing that, that you need. That's the kind of agent that, that we need to do that for us. I mean, another way of doing it, of course, is to have somebody look at your in- inbox for you. You know, you've got to throw your hands up and say, I'm sorry, I I, I failed, <laughs> um, and I, I'm going to use somebody else to act as my filter, and that could be one way of doing it. Uh, another thing that I do is in Fastmail, I set up rules for low priority and high priority, and I created an IMAP folder called high priority, and that's the one that I monitor. And my clients have emails that go straight into high priority, and something like nine out of ten of emails that I receive are either bacon or low priority stuff, and that goes into a low priority rule in Fastmail, and they all get sent to my low priority folder, which is not visible in my IMAP folder structure in Airmail. But the other thing is also mark them as red. So if you don't, yeah. And the thing is, every so often, maybe every two weeks, three weeks, I have a quick look at my uh, low priority folder, and I go through the list and I go, yeah, didn't worry about that. Yeah, didn't miss that. Yeah, that wasn't important. Yeah, this is all working. And I, my email inbox is now manageable 
This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by Fracture. Visit fracture.me and save 15% off your first Fracture order with the exclusive code POWER15. Fracture is a photo decor company that can print your photos directly onto glass and add a laser cut rigid backing so they're ready to display right out of the box. They even include the wall anchor. Just upload your digital photo, pick your size, and get your Fracture in the mail. It's that simple. I've been buying Fracture prints for years, and I've got them all over my house. They look amazing, and one of the things I like is I can move them into different rooms, and it doesn't matter, because it's a frameless design. The picture, in essence, is it's a frame, so it fits in with any decorating style. I've got Fracture prints of my kids and even covers of some of the books I've written. The Fracture process makes color and contrast of your photos really pop, and the sleek, frameless design lets your photos stand out. We've all got some amazing pictures we've taken on our iPhones, and they're sitting on our computers right now where nobody can see them. Why not have a few of them printed up as Fracture prints? You can even rotate them in your house, which is what we do. And additionally, in December, Fracture prints make thoughtful, unique gifts. We all have family members that are hard to find gifts for, and for a lot of those people, a high-quality Fracture print will be perfect. Maybe it's a picture of their grandkids or a picture of their dog. They're going to love having it on their wall. Fracture prints are handmade in Gainesville, Florida from U.S. source materials. Fracture is a green company uh, operating a carbon neutral factory or fractory, if you will. Either way, it's already December, gang. Uh, The Fracture's order queue does fill up during this time of year. So if you're thinking about getting it, don't wait. Get online now and get yourself some Fracture prints. Go to Fracture.me and save 15% off your first order with the exclusive code POWER15 in all caps and no spaces. Don't forget to select Mac Power users in their one-question survey. It helps support the show. So what are you waiting for? Get on Fracture.me and make somebody's holiday. Shahid, let's talk about the deep work. You know, you make video games and something you told me, I I didn't realize you're doing a bunch of this stuff on the Mac. I just assumed you were making games on PCs. No, the interesting thing is that there are some excellent tools on the Mac for making games. And because because the, the work of making a game is now so much more portable than it used to be because of these tools, you can do a bunch of work on the Mac. So for example, if you're doing prototype work, I don't know if you've heard of uh, a wonderful piece of software called Unity 3D. Well, a lot of the games out there are written in Unity nowadays. If you heard of a game called Firewatch, that was written in Unity. Um, If you heard of a game called Inside by Playdead, that was written in Unity. These are some amazing games, and they're written in Unity. Unity is uh, a framework and uh, an integrated development environment and a piece of middleware, basically an entire system for creating video games. And it has absolutely everything you need to make a video game, if you choose to use it that way, built in. See, I I had always understood it was a 3D modeling platform. I didn't realize it was a game engine. It's a game engine. It's a game uh, API. Uh, It lets you do so much stuff. And the other thing is it has a really thriving asset store from which people can buy pre-built assets that act as components you know component parts of of video games or functionality and people can also sell on the asset store as well so instead of having to make something from scratch let's say you need something like a particular ai 
you could find an asset that helps you do that. If you wanted to find, for example, uh, a corridor um, in a space station, you'd be able to find an asset for that on the Unity Asset Store. So often the prices are also quite low, but it also gets gets um, to, to some very complex systems. Like I've got this asset called Archimatics, which allows you to use some knobs and sliders and so on to build parametric um, uh, models which are procedurally generated. And when I say parametric, I mean you can bring up a whole bunch of sliders, knobs and buttons and so on to tweak the way an asset looks in real time. So let's take a simple example. This asset uh, the Archimatics asset is a bunch of code and a bunch of models you buy in the store for absolutely no money. And I think it's like a hundred bucks. It's nothing. And what it lets you do is, let's say, for example, you have a building and you create this building using Archimatics and it has one floor and it has a window, but you attach different uh, knobs and sliders to these so that within the Unity editor, you could change some of these values and suddenly out of just that initial set of components, you now have a two-story building or a three-story building, or it now has three windows, four windows, five windows, or it now has a more wavy pattern. This is a kind of revolution that has taken place in video games where not only is the basic tool set that you have for making video games so accessible, but because everybody is making stuff for it, these pieces of functionality or these assets, sometimes sound, sometimes video, sometimes, you know, models, can be traded very, very easily. And it allows even the most ordinary games programmer, and I don't say that with disrespect, by the way, because Logic Audio on the Mac did exactly the same thing for music. It allows ordinary people who don't have too much talent in programming or whatever to express themselves and create video games. Now, how how steep is the on-ramp for something like Unity? And I have a reason for asking you this question. I, I've got this nephew who's, I think he's like 12 now, and he loves to play video games. And everybody in the family is a little worried because that's all he wants to do is play video games. So my, I was talking to his parents thinking maybe we should just get him into making video games rather than just playing them all the time. You know, he can use more of his gray matter. And, um, and I was really thinking, I mean, when I was a kid, they used to have video game construction sets where you could make simple scrolling games and things like that. And my friends and I would make games and share them with each other. But, um, but I'm wondering now, maybe Unity or something, is there something like that, that if someone's listening, they had a kid in their life, they wanted to get into it, they could get them started? You know, you could use Unity. Uh, you could use something like Game Maker as well by Yo-Yo Games. They're both good systems. And those are both Mac apps? Uh, I believe Game Maker is available for Mac. Probably worth checking. But uh, Unity, definitely. You know, it's interesting because I met uh, David Helgeson. Um, he won't like me for telling the story, but it's fine. It was a long time ago. David Hel Helgeson is the founder of Unity. Um, while I was at PlayStation, I met him in a Nando's. Do you know what a Nando's is? Yeah, that's a, uh, I'm, I'm told that's the place that I have to eat when I go to London. <laughs> it's a very, very chicken place. And I met him at uh, a downbeat Nando's in northwest London back in 2009. And uh, this is before Unity was, was anything, you know, that nobody knew about Unity. 
and uh, we both had 10 wings. I never knew about this thing that you could have 10 wings. Anyway, it's not a Mac story, but it, I, it means I kind of hit it off with David because he taught me this 10 wing thing. So he gets out a Mac and I'm kind of surprised. You know, well, what are you doing, dude? You're in the games industry. Why have you got a Mac? Not that I didn't like him for that because, of course, by this time I was a, a an avowed Mac Macophile, if that's such a thing. And he showed me the system that had been built on the Mac. Unity actually originated on the Mac. And it was fantastic. Even back then, it was doing amazing stuff. And he was talking about how it was capable of producing iOS games and Mac games and uh, even and able to be ported to PC sooner or later. But at that point, they were developing on the Mac. And we just had a long conversation about just how much better the Mac was than the PC. Just thought I'd uh, throw in that little story. But yeah, Unity is not just good on the Mac. It started on the Mac. What other tools do you use to make games on the Mac? Uh, there are loads of things. So, for example, uh, there is a, a text editor called Sublime Text, which you might have heard of. For me, a lot it's, of the geeks love Sublime Text. Yes. Oh, I totally love it. Now, here's the reason why it's so much better on Mac than it is on PC. It has smooth scrolling. If you use it on a Mac with a Retina display, I remember when they first started doing this with Sublime Text 3, the beta. If you swipe up on the uh, on the pad, the text moves impossibly smoothly. Doesn't do that on the PC. It's just beautiful. Now, when you're using an editor 6, 8, 12, 14 hours a day, everything about it has got to have minimal friction. Uh, you you know, you. I'm sure you're both well aware of this phenomenon. Just about every other tool you use, any tool that you use for that period of time, you had better make sure the friction is low. But something like a text editor where you're literally pounding out just acres of text, you need it to have that smoothness and low resistance. Sublime Text for me has the lowest resistance of any text editor I've ever used. And I used to write text editors uh, back in the day. And, and what t- what type of text are you writing programming code? In yeah, that, yeah. So I'll write C Sharp or C++. Whatever the language, Sublime Text is the editor to use. I use it with a bunch of plugins as well. So I even write Markdown with it from time to time. So if I'm on the PC, rather than using any any old editor, I don't even know which editors are good on the PC, uh, I will import something from Dropbox into Sublime Text and use the um, various Markdown plugins to make everything look neat and tidy. Now, and Sublime Text is one of those text editors that is multi-platform. I mean, not all of them are. So if you're on the PC and the Mac, that's a good one to look at. It is, but it's best on Mac. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Always. You know, it is funny. I mean, both on iOS and Mac, Apple does spend a lot of time trying to dial in that scrolling speed and just kind of very... I guess what some people would think of as, you know, meat and potatoes basics, but I don't know that any other hardware manufacturer really does it as well as Apple with those types of things. No, it doesn't. I mean, that, that's what I noticed when I was working on that, that um, Windows uh, Surface convertible PC was just scrolling in, mm. in their version of Safari. I forget what it's called, but it just you know, the screen would go gray. And and I think it was the processor, but I'm sure the operating system was part of the problem too. Yeah, it must be, right? It must be. It just doesn't prioritize certain things the way that the, the Mac does. 
it's so subtle, the differences in priorities that these companies have, but how much they affect you. I mean, we've talked about privacy today and, and things like UI ease of use, but I mean, just uh, all companies take these things important, but, but by shifting the priorities just a little bit, you know, saying this is more important than that, it changes the final product so much. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Casper. Casper is the company focused on sleep, and they are dedicated to making you exceptionally comfortable one night at a time. You spend a third of your life sleeping, and if you spend a third of your life doing anything, you'd want to make sure it's as best as it possibly can be. And that's why you need Casper. Casper mattresses are perfectly designed for humans with engineering to soothe and support your natural geometry. Casper has support in all the right places. So what goes into making a Casper mattress so comfortable? They combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality mattress with just the right sink and bounce. Casper mattresses are designed and developed in the U.S., and their breathable design helps you regulate your body temperature throughout the night. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, Casper is quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. They deliver directly to your door, and if for any reason you don't love it, Casper has a hassle-free return policy. I've been sleeping on a Casper mattress for several months now, and I can tell you I will never buy a mattress in a traditional store again. Ordering a mattress through Casper was quick and easy and painless, and it just showed up in a box at my door. No hassle, no fuss, no worrying about delivery people, no taking off time work to, to meet people with a mattress. It just doesn't get any easier than that. So you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash NPU and using code MPU at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's casper.com slash MPU and offer code MPU. Thank Casper again for their support of the show. So as people who listen to this podcast probably know, I have no interest in gaming. Probably the, the last game I played with any regularity was, was Duck Hunt. Um, on the original NES. However, I will tell you, I am kind of watching this whole um, virtual reality evolution. And I'm the the whole idea of being able to put on a, a headset and emerge into a, a new world. Um, I, I got to admit, I'd, I'd love to be able to put on a headset and go stroll around the, the decks of the Enterprise or, or get into a lightsaber battle or, or one of those types of things. And I know it's outside of the realm of our, our normal workflow topics, but uh, since we have you here, I, I couldn't help but but ask you maybe to comment a, a little bit about that. And uh, we, we've seen Apple double down a little bit on gaming and particularly their last few events talking about the, the coming iMac Pro um, and the, the new Mac Pro being more built specifically for developing gaming. You know, what are your thoughts on the future of those things? Well, the elephant in the room, of course, is iOS and the way that disrupted game development forever, I would suspect. I don't like to use the term forever the way it's used commonly, but I think it's fair enough to use it in this case. I don't think the the development world will ever be the same again. So for developing iOS games, the Mac is a perfect device. It The way they've set everything up uh, with, with Xcode and the simulators and so on. It's just a beautiful device. And there are a number of languages that you can use with it, uh, or you could just use Unity. And for that, for developing iOS games, 
the the Mac is absolutely perfect. And I would much rather be in that ecosystem than developing something for other platforms like consoles coming from a PC. It's just a more pleasant experience. Everything integrates more nicely. But if you're talking about games for the Mac as a platform, then that has never really taken off. It's got better. I would say that the most important indicator of the... I guess the level of penetration of video games on the Mac is to look at Steam and see how much of a percentage of games are being played on Macs. And it's significantly less than 10%. You know, the vast majority of people who use Steam use it on a PC. There are a number of reasons for this. The first is that typically you can get a PC for less and people use really, really cheap PC laptops to play Steam games. And some people use expensive hardware too, but the PC world is a lot more commoditized. I'm not going to throw in the longstanding argument about the, the lifetime value of a Mac, which is, of course, significantly more. But you can get PCs for cheaper, even if you are going to throw them away after a year or two. So that would explain some of it, but doesn't explain all of it. You can also get absolutely top-end hardware on the PC. You know, they're right at the bleeding edge that isn't available. And there are a lot of gamers who want to play on bleeding edge hardware. So can the Mac compete with that? Well, I'm not sure that the people who buy Macs buy them to play games. I think playing games on a Mac has traditionally been a secondary, tertiary, or non-existent activity. I know that sounds really painful to those people who do play games on Macs, like I do, but it is just, you know, those are the facts, and we can't argue with them. So Apple knows its market. Apple knows that people would like to develop on the Mac, and they've made it a really good environment on which to develop. But they also know that the primary purpose for um for the Mac has not been games for a long time and probably never will be. It's a great machine for doing stuff on, but for playing games, it kind of seems like overkill. But you can do it. And I'm increasingly finding myself uh, playing games on the Mac, especially if you've got a decent GPU in there. Um, as for the future, well, you know, the, the iMac Pro looks like one heck of a dev machine. I would love to find a way of setting that up so that I could use it for you know, you'd still have to run something like Bootcamp maybe and do some PC stuff on it, or perhaps Parallels Desktop or VMware or whatever, because you'd have more than enough horsepower to be able to run all of that. It's interesting because at WWDC, Apple showed off the iMac Pro with VR. And if you'd think that what they were going to show you is demonstrating a VR game, putting you in a VR world. But what they did instead was they showed you using the iMac Pro to create a VR world, not to actually play a VR game, but to create one, which is really kind of telling as to where, where Apple's thinking about this stuff and probably not that positive for someone that wants to play games on the Mac. But then, you know, if you can, if you want to play a VR game right now, probably the most mainstream option is PSVR. And we're talking about a total cost of well south of a thousand bucks to have that kind of setup and it's easy to get going and you can have it in the living room where you've probably got more space than your desktop and so on and and play there but the thing with the the iMac Pro is yes it would be a great dev machine the thing i liked about the old Mac Pros as opposed to the iMac Pro was that it was an aspirational machine for people who were serious about their profession but it was never really good for developing games 
Nobody ever saw it that way. And it's a significant market now, video games development. So if you have an iMac Pro as a developer machine for VR games, it becomes an aspirational machine for developers. We can't ignore the halo effect of that kind of machine. It might not be um, the halo effect in terms of getting sales directly, because let's let's face it, common users don't care that professionals are using iMac Pros. But what would happen is if you start to do this, you'll then start to see the iMac Pro being used for making games and films, and then people can be interested in the rest of the Mac line. It, I know it's a stretch, but I think that's really the only thing that's going to come out of this. I don't think Apple's primary goal here is to have it uh, be a games development machine per se. They're hedging their bets, but they're making it appealing to professionals across the board and maybe trying to get some professionals who previously would only have considered a PC. Hey, I'm considering one. Yeah, and, and there's still the un, the the announced but undisclosed I, um, the uh, Mac Pro, you know, for I guess sometime next year we're going to see, which, you know, who knows what kind of hardware that thing's going to have. But, but the uh, I was talking to a, a PC games friend who was saying like one of the big issues for him on the Mac was uh, he can change the video card anytime he wants. He'll buy hardware and then every six months he'll put a new video card in it. And you just can't do stuff like that with the Mac. Apple has no interest in supporting that market. Yeah. And you know what? Who wants to really? Yeah, Except, exactly. <laughs> you know, if I want to do that, I'll just play on my console. And I'll wait till the console gets updated. I kind of gave up on that stuff when I ended up in hospital because of my PC. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about full circle. (laughs) Hey, there's a few other apps on your list in the outline that I I wanted to just take a minute to talk about. Um, I know we're almost out of time, but, but day one was one of those apps that everybody loved. And I went to the subscription model and you just didn't hear about it much anymore. But I know you're a big day one user. Tell us a little bit about how you're using day one. I use day one for pretty much everything. You know, beautiful moments in the day pass by so quickly. And day one makes it so easy to capture those fleeting moments. So I will put family photos in into day one. Uh, I have... Uh, I have a bunch of different journals in day one. I think I have 10 at the moment, but I could have more. I have one for children. Anytime something interesting happens with one of my kids or they say something interesting or I take in a photo of them, go straight into the children folder. I have one for work. I have one for health. Today I went to see my diabetic consultant and I recorded all of my results into day one. So in the future, if I want to look back, see how my health has changed over the years, I can see it in the calendar format. It just seems to me that there's so much data in our lives for which the perfect metadata is the time, the place, and the date. And day one captures that automatically for you. So why not use it for those purposes? Um, I also use it for personal journaling. I have a gratitude journal in there, which has hundreds of entries, maybe a thousand plus. I have uh, a goals journal into which I enter my updated list of goals regularly. Uh, You know, I have all kinds of different journals for, for different things. But the other thing I really like about it is, you know, you've got that activity feed button in the middle. You go to the activity, you have a plus right in the middle of the iOS app. It's the iOS ones that I use the most. You you tap on the plus and up comes the activity feed 
option near the top. You tap that and then you've got access to all your tweets that you've posted that day, all of your Instagram posts, all of the photos that you've taken, all of the places that you've been. So, you know, one of the things I was I used to be really bad at is just to record my day. Um, and uh, you are both probably familiar with um, a, a success teacher called Jim Rohn, who passed away a while ago. And one of the things I learned from him was journaling. You know, you, you, your life is short, but if you don't capture the moments in a journal, you'll just lose them. And I find now I'm just a lot more present and aware of beautiful moments as they come into my life and pass by. And day one is a perfect vehicle for, for capturing those moments. And that activity feed is just genius because at the end of the day, I'll have this nice little review period. So after this show, I'll sit down with day one, I'll look at my activity feed and I'll pick out anything interesting. Oh, that's a cool photo. What was happening at this time? And I'll make a little comment straight into day one. Um, I'll do my gratitude, goals, whatever, straight into day one. So so pretty much anything for which time, date and place are useful metadata, like all my travel journaling, all of that stuff goes into day one. And I use it across all of my devices. So I use it on, on the Mac too. But I think primarily uh, it, it gets used on the iOS devices. Hey, the re- I actually, I'm thinking about it as well. I was just looking at this week about maybe subscribing. In February, somebody gave me a journal book, like a really nice quality journal pick book and a nice pen. So I started using it, which, you know, which is odd. The guy that wrote the book called Paperless has been having this paper <laughs> journal book. But I do, do you find... Know, sorry, I must interrupt you. I must tell you, you transformed my life with that book. Oh, thank you. The, re- the reason I have a Fujitsu scan snap. And the reason I started using Evernote, but now use Dev and Think Pro, it's just down to your show. I so, appreciate that. Again, David, Katie, thank you for saving my life. I'm not buried under a mountain of paper. <laughs> oh, now, now I'm flummoxed. Thank you. <laughs> but the uh, so so they gave me this book, and I I didn't know what I was going to do with it. But now, like when I read something in a book that I want to write down, or my kids say something funny, I I find the act of writing it down in this little journal I've been carrying around for the year has been a satisfying experience for me. But as I get towards the end of the year, the book is filling up and I don't really want to lose it. And I feel like just leaving it in this paper form is nuts. So I I'm, I could just take the spine off and, you know, and run it through my scan snap, which to the horror of many listeners, people go crazy every time I talk about doing that. But then I was looking at day one. I may just take day one and just start taking pictures of the pages and putting them in a day one journal. I don't know, but I, I feel like that app has really progressed a lot. But, you know, like so many apps that go on the subscription model, everybody kind of stops looking at it, and um, which really isn't that fair. It's not that expensive. And the way you're using it, you're certainly getting your value out of it. Yeah, well over 10,000 entries and counting. I've been using wow. it for over six years now. Now, do you have a plan, having used it that much, are you going to print it? I mean, how are you going to get that out of there? Let's say you drop dead tomorrow. I hate to say this. Yeah. No, yeah. no, it's, it's a valid question. Uh, they haven't introduced the book printing service to the UK. But I tell you what, the second they do, I'm printing everything. Katie, now you used to use Day One quite a bit professionally. Are you still using it? Um, Kind of. I'm not using it anymore as a professional journal. I, I have a... I have tried so, so many times to journal and I, you know, it was been my New Year's resolution a couple of times. It's just, it's just never caught on. 
what I have got going on is um, I, I've got a lot of if this, then that rules set up to automatically filter things into day one. So it's kind of like a, a life blog or a, a live stream of, of things that are happening in my life because so much in my life is on the Internet. You know, like tweets will go there. And when we post a Mac Power Users episode, it will go there and the weather will go there and, you know, top local headlines will go there. And uh, so it's just kind of a way of collecting things that happen that day, but really without any interaction from me. Do you go back and look at it at all? I mean, or is it? No, um, I I keep thinking I will maybe one day. And sometimes I've had like photos that I've taken have gone there, but then I, I stopped that because I wasn't so sure about the security of that. I, I always thought that I might, but yet I never did. So I, I would like to, but I haven't. It's it's funny because I, like you, had tried to journal so many times and it never really stuck until someone gave me a pen and a, and a book with paper in it. And I think that for me, somehow that helps the process. But also the nerd in me does not like the idea of just having it in this, you know, paper. Uh, I, I want to figure a way to, to digitize it that makes sense and maybe combine it with day one. I don't know. Uh, Shahid has, has uh, convinced me. I think I'm going to go ahead and try and sign up for it for a couple months and just see how deep I can get into it and I'll report back. Ah, uh, you cost me money this time. <laughs> Makes a change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if you don't want to know how much money the listeners have cost me, just walk around my house and look at all the sonos. <laughs> uh, we we uh we had a a party for a bunch of family, so I took the uh, sonos um, out of the, uh, upstairs bathroom because I have one, <laughs> the upstairs bathroom and put it in the downstairs. And one of my friends walked, walked in the bathroom and the Christmas music was playing. And he, he looked at me and said, really, you got this in the bathroom? <laughs> Why not? You can listen to podcasts, right? Well, <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> or, or it, it, with my ears, you could listen to multi-pitched Christmas carols that drive you slowly insane. <laughs> Shahid, where do people go find you? I, I'm most accessible on Twitter. I'm also obviously podcasting on Remaster. I have a couple of websites, but it's pretty hard to get in touch with me that way. Twitter's usually the best way. And, and Remaster is right here on the Relay Network. It's a great show. I recommend you go listen to it if you haven't. And um, and there's so many things you're doing. I mean, uh, top 10 persons of the year and top 100 influencers in the British games industry. I mean, uh, so many things, so many accomplishments at your young age. I, uh, I can't imagine what you're going to do next, but I, I can't wait to see it. It'll probably be on a Mac. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you for giving us a little bit of your time and sharing some of your uh, your workflows. We appreciate having you here. We're the Mac Power Users. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Mac Power Users. Katie's at Katie Floyd, and I'm at Max Sparky. Um, thank you to our sponsors, Making Light, Gazelle Fracture, and Casper. And we'll see you all next time.